0: This podcast is a 98 Studios production.
1: Hey, it's Christy. Welcome back to Do the Work. Today and every day, we will talk about things that really matter. You, your thoughts, your feelings, and your experiences. Relationships are what matter most, and they can be complicated. If you'd like a better connection with yourself, with others, and with God, you are in the right place. So glad you're here. Welcome back to Do the Work. I am really grateful and excited to have Stephen Croshaw join me today on this podcast. For the next 4 weeks, I'm going to talk about relationships. I want to talk about the marriage relationship, dating relationships, and even friendships. And there's a topic that we so that relates to every relationship that we so often dismiss but so greatly affects our relationships, and when I when we talk about friendships, I want to. We're going to talk about friendships with ourselves and with others. How to really love and care about ourselves as well. And so today we're starting off this four week section on relationships with the topic of love versus lust. So I'm so glad you're here, and I'm really grateful to have you with me today, Stephen.
0: Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you,
1: Chris. Thank you so much. I'm going to introduce you um, officially, but will you add anything that I miss? All sure. the good stuff. Oh, okay, yes, of course. Okay. <laughs> Stephen Croshaw has chosen to take his life experiences and use them as stepping stones instead of being crushed by them. After finding pornography when he was six years old and after years and decades of using and not using porn and other sexual behaviors to numb, Stephen and his wife, Real, created the SA Lifeline Foundation, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization founded in 2008. It was their decades of experience with addiction and trauma that prompted the formation of an organization that could provide hope, education, and Resources to the Recovery of Pornography and Sexual Addiction, and Betrayal Trauma. And both of those are so critical. They're so critical. Our, their purpose together is most succinctly stated as recovering individuals, healing families. I just love that thank you really so beautiful steven and real truly live what they teach and it's such a pleasure to have Stephen on the podcast with me today so i uh, together you have seven children and 29 grandchildren and almost have been have been married for almost 51 years right right Ah, it just is so sweet to me i i really love that because to see and hear about your life experiences, I just think gives hope, like instantly gives hope to so many people who have had pain and trauma in their lives. So, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, there
0: are some miracles there.
1: There are There miracles. are some miracles
0: there, yes. And I'm sure after we talk about this a bit, people may question are there such miracles in people's lives that this could really happen? Because our story, my story, and my wife's story, and our story is pretty colorful yeah. and challenging. Yeah. But 18 years ago, I came forward, actually for the third time, but acknowledging that I was living a double life. And that started me on a genuine pathway of working recovery, but it was three years later that we started the foundation. And the motivation was really taking a lifetime to discover what recovery would require does require has required of me and that if i could share my story if my wife could share her story could we help someone else and that was that was really our goal
2: uh,
1: and you have helped probably thousands at this point
0: i'm sure yeah, yeah in some so way in many. some way yeah
1: I really want to encourage anybody who's listening to this, especially if they've struggled with pornography addiction, betrayal trauma, really probably any kind of addiction, go to Salifelying.org. That's that's the URL, that's right? Right. Mm-hmm. And you they have so many wonderful resources there. This is not your first rodeo. You've been you have a podcast, you and Real do a podcast.
0: We are Foundation has a podcast called Pathway to Recovery. Okay. It can be found on the website. Okay. And then any podcast delivery uh can yeah. method people can use that, and my daughter, actually our daughter, is the host of of that podcast and we we with that podcast give a number of different um topics and professionals and people who live a life of recovery an opportunity to speak about their experience,
1: so great. You so you have a podcast. You've been on po- podcasts. I've heard you speak at conferences. Both of you together. I've heard you together,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it is it really is so inspiring. Inspiring today. I want to talk about the difference between love and lust, and that's I that it's it's a topic that is maybe hard for people to understand when we think of the word lust so often um we disassociate ourselves from it because well i'm i'm not choosing that or we don't maybe even understand what it is because there's not a lot of conversation about it in a lot of different mm-hmm. circles so i wanted to ask you today first question right off the bat what would you say is the definition well no wait stop will you tell your story just really quick
0: sure I think it's important to have some perspective. Yeah, I do too. Of where I would be coming from. And my responses to your questions will really be based upon my own experience. Yeah. I'm not a professional. I'm not a therapist.
1: You are an and, expert. Uh,
0: I'm, but I have, I have some experience that I can share. You bet. Really, my story, as you mentioned very, re- as very early, I was exposed to pornography accidentally. I'm six years old. Um, that was a long time ago. 1958, and pornography was just really getting started in printed materials, pornographic magazines. And my brother, who was nine years older than me, had a pornographic magazine, and he had hidden it in his chest of drawers. Um, Out of curiosity, I was just going through his stuff, and I'm sure a six-year-old, I'll I'll forgive myself for going through his stuff. But anyway, (laughs) I I found this magazine, and I was curious. I took it to my bedroom. I looked at it. And I knew instinctively that it was wrong, but I also had a euphoric experience. Mm. So I took it to my mother. I remember honest. Uh, I remember the feelings that I had and the, the desire to be honest about it, not knowing or understanding in any way what the euphoria was that I was experiencing. So I go down the stairs, I go into the kitchen, there's my mother, and I hand her the magazine. Mm. That's all I remember, that experience. She, I don't recall her saying anything to me about it. She took the magazine, but there was nothing spoken as far as I can recall. And I think had she said something to me, I would have remembered. And so I'm sure what she felt was some degree of confusion and maybe even some shame. Here's my little boy, found this magazine. What do I say? And so she chose to say, she nothing. didn't say anything,
1: which was a common way of handling.
0: Yeah, back then, products. especially, I think that we just did not speak of the topic of sex, and there was nothing known of, of what the pornographic materials would do to a little boy who's having that first experience. So I think she, I, I, I would certainly wouldn't suggest that my mom did something no. uh, intentionally wrong, because she because she didn't. But anyway, I remembered that euphoric experience, and thereafter I would. I would look to see if I could find a magazine. It was oftentimes in my brother's stuff. So I would find the magazine, I'd look at it, and then I would put it back. I didn't ever give it to my mom again. Mm -hmm. That's the really early part of my story. And I meet so many people who have stories similar than that first exposure that they have vivid memories of, that they speak of it. Even one person that – and I remember talking to him about his experience of going into a garage with friends and all over the walls were – uh, pictures of pornography, <clears throat> and he said at a very young age, I think he was maybe even younger than I was, he said it was magical and mystical.
1: Yeah, of course.
0: So a little person like myself does not know how to process that kind of experience. Yeah. are just as, totally not ready.
1: Yeah. As you say that, I think six years old, like just yeah. anyone who's listening to this can can connect and see a six-year-old in their life. You would right. have no idea what to do with that.
0: And so yeah. what what are our young people or children experiencing today with access to pornography on their phones, on a tablet, on their computer? It's very common, and I work with Literally dozens and dozens and dozens of people. Um, right now I'm working with 18 young single adult men directly. and You're, all their, of the, you're
1: their sponsor?
0: I'm actually... Or you're uh, just
1: working with them?
0: I'm working with them over Zoom
1: oh, yeah. on an
0: international basis. Oh, wow. And they have. I'm helping them to understand how they can surrender this desire to go to lust. Got it. Anyway, we think about our children right now and the exposure that they have to pornography... And we as parents need to recognize that this is something we begin to talk to our children about in regard to healthy sexuality and the importance of speaking about our experiences sexually without shame, and parents being able to talk about it from the perspective of the feelings that you have are natural. We have this natural instinct to be attracted to one another. The most important thing is to talk about them, but also to recognize that there's danger in using things that are inappropriate and, and pornographic images are really inappropriate for our health and why and then talk about the why that is yes. and how it will impact us as we go forward. And so the importance of being able to talk about it and then put boundaries in, in place and so that it's not so easy to get there. And so the children have some way of giving themselves protection. I think it's very important for a parent to help a child set up their own boundaries. I do Most do children really want to stay safe. They, but, but they're not necessarily. Um, it's kind of like this is an unwanted behavior. I'm drawn to it. I know it's not right. I participate in it. Then I feel it's still good about it.
2: after. Yeah, yeah. so it's,
0: it's really kind of an unwanted behavior, but it has rewards with it. And so just continuing to go back. Anyway, back to my story. Um, I, I continued to be involved with in pornography and some inappropriate relationships in high school. And all of that was, as I learned more about my other people's stories, this is not uncommon. The challenge that I had was that I always hid the behavior. I didn't ever talk to anyone about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I became of marriage age, uh, um, I found the girl that I loved. I just was incredibly attracted to her, a beautiful and very talented woman.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I had gone through what I felt like I needed to, to be worthy of her hand. I'll say that I went through the process of repentance. I confessed my behaviors and I felt like I was worthy of her hand. I had no idea that all of these past experiences were experiences that I had that I would not um that I felt like wouldn't go back to. I didn't realize I would be still prone to go back to those behaviors after marriage.
2: Yeah.
0: I thought marriage would totally solve any sexual desires that I have. Well, mm-hmm. what I discovered a was a common
1: misconception. Totally.
0: That's a total mm-hmm. misconception. Yeah. Most people have that misconception. Oh, as soon as I get married, I'm gonna have all of the the uh, opportunities to have these my sexual and emotional needs met through just a a, a marriage with my beautiful wife and I'm good I'm good. Well, yeah. that's not true. Yeah. Um, shortly after we were married, um, I think I don't recall exactly how long, but I went back to pornography, masturbation. I told no one. My wife had absolutely no. Um, understanding of my previous behavior. I didn't ever talk to her about that. That's another part of my story, but we won't spend the time to go there. I I chose not to tell her. And so feeling like I had properly addressed my problem by repenting of it, quote unquote, repenting, um, I went on and I didn't, as I participated in the behavior, I didn't tell anyone and I didn't tell her. I was a salesperson and I traveled in my business. And as I traveled over a period of time, years, I discovered that my behaviors escalated from pornography to ma- from pornography and masturbation to adult establishments, mm-hmm. and that really is a big step towards prostitution.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, after a period of many years, by the time I was in my mid thirties, I had progressed all the way from pornography as a little boy to prostitutes as a as a man a married man with children um, to acting out with prostitutes and it was all always happening when I was alone on my on on the road yeah. so um, that this part of my story is at about age thirty six I recognized that my life was so unmanageable and out of control that I was going to have to talk about it, so mm-hmm. I finally came forward and I told my wife in a complete way, but sadly in a way that was very difficult for her to be able to comprehend. She had no way of comprehending and processing this, and so it was traumatizing for her. Of course. I didn't understand that. She didn't understand that, nor did anyone that we sought help from. So, um, essentially, I was willing to stop the behavior. I went through some discipline in my church my wife was asked to just forgive and forget, and I was told to not look back and never talk about it. And so that's what we Bless both did. Bless those
1: leaders' hearts. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean, they were they were an, and they were such trying. great people, yeah. and, but they had no clue. <laughs> exactly. They had no idea, and I really had no idea. My wife had no idea of really what what either of us were were dealing with. And so we followed instructions. And even if, even if Ril brought up, she would maybe ask me, how are you doing? What's happening? What's happening now with your desires to, uh, to do what you were doing before? I don't know if we even spoke the words. Um, I'd say, oh, it's all, it's all fine. I'm I'm good. And for three years, I was. Yeah. Three years, I was good. Um, and then at a at a moment and i know where i was i know what city i was in and i can literally see the sign on the motel that said triple x movie movies i pulled in went to the motel and looked at a movie that was 3 years down the pathway and i hadn't looked at any pornography i hadn't been involved in any masturbation prior to that for 3 years and so a person would say aren't you aren't you healed after that period of time and the answer is Obviously, for me, no, mm-hmm. and I haven't met anyone that doesn't really work recovery that that uh, even though they may go for a period of time without without behavior, it, that they could consider themselves in recovery. I certainly wasn't in recovery. So I need to shorten this story, but <clears throat> so after that three year period, I went back to the behavior and I hid it for seven more years. And it was um, a tough seven years and i missed a lot of opportunity with my family
1: cuz you're disconnected right you're I'm, trying to manage
0: i am disconnected when i say i missed a lot things. of opportunity at that point my wife and i were we had young children and i should really be enjoying those relationships and i was disconnected
2: yeah.
0: and there were times when real would say to me i i don't feel like i know you
2: yeah and
0: i would say well i'm sure of course you know me
2: yeah
0: So that's really a hard thing for a spouse, for my wife, to feel that I'm not there to connect with and I'm denying that I've got a problem. It's a common thing, sadly. So I go this period of 10 years between the first time that I disclose until the second time. Um, And the second time, a lot of water had gone under the bridge. I'd done a lot of things that I to try to escape from the behavior, including selling my business and moving my family. Um, I thought if I get off the road and I change my environment, then I can stop this behavior. Well, I tried that and I moved my family and no one knew why. (laughs) Oh, wow. What a story. So I moved my family and I thought we were starting over, but I couldn't stop the behavior. So, um, so I came forward again the second time, and I won't – it was just deja vu. So the same thing happened again. This time, however, real was very concerned that she be part of the solution. So she jumped in and tried to help me. And the way she did that was reading books, finding therapists, encourage me, encouraging me to read the books and go to the therapists. And I was following her lead but she was taking the lead and i was as a follower just kind of doing right. what i yes. felt like i needed to so um sadly i actually felt some resentment about that um i i i there she was finding the therapist and we went to the therapist and i tried i can remember coming home from a therapist one day we were driving along and she said well what did you learn there what what how did you feel can you help me understand is this helping you and i on all of those questions were just causing me to feel some resentment, like, um, "Well, uh, I'm feeling fine, thank you. I think this is helping. Thank you very much." Yeah. <laughs> the sad part is my my therapist didn't really know how to help us either. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think that I think that's actually common because if she's driving your recovery, if she's like, "Here we go to therapy, and here's the therapist," and I think that's common for because. You're not both feet, both hands, full body into the recovery. So then we resent the person who's trying to get, I just, I, I love your honesty. And I think that's common.
0: It is common. It's, it's totally common for a spouse who really wants the marriage to work and is doing their best to help do it. They're trying, they're doing their best. And it's, it's something that you would think would be incredibly good and be certainly, I should be appreciating that. But the opposite was the case, and but I, I we didn't really talk about it in those terms, and I yeah. didn't really even know it. Right, interesting story. It, it just happened it just repeated itself. I went three years, and I went back to the behavior, and this time I was really feeling the shame of it. Mm-hmm. I was hiding it again, living the double life. Uh, children were growing. Um, we were we had experienced some financial challenges because I I had just kind of. Moved away from the things that were that I was familiar with that I was good at making making an income to things that I wasn't good at
2: yeah.
0: I was committed to not being on the road, but I couldn't figure out how to really make a living so we we experienced some financial challenges uh we made it through that fine, but anyway, seven years after that second time that I came forward it was it was the same thing. I came forward because I couldn't handle it anymore, except The big part of my story is I had been arrested for picking up a prostitute. And so on August 25 of 2005, I was arrested for picking up a prostitute and I was given a citation for loitering for the purpose of prostitution. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And it was a curious situation because I didn't intend to act out with this person, but I knew she was a prostitute and I picked her up. And then my intent was to just let her out. Well, police were watching her and before I could let her out, then they arrested me,
2: Hmm.
0: gave me a ticket. The truth about that is I was shattered and shamed and felt like my life was ending. But in reality, my life at that point was I was given a new chance. I was given a chance to really see myself rightly. And it took me about two and a half weeks to come to the point where I was willing to come forward again and I only came forward, again, I believe, because the pain of fear of being caught was so intense that I felt like I can't, I can't continue to live with this, so I'm going to come forward and be honest. Even if it costs me my marriage, my job, my church membership, and everything else, I'm, I can't carry this weight anymore. Yeah. So that's what I did. I finally came forward, and I had a spiritual experience in doing that. Um, I came to myself recognizing how foolish— in denying denying that I am a believer and denying that certainly God already knows all of these things that I'm participating in, who am I fooling here? So, with that spiritual experience, I, I I did invest myself in the efforts of honestly participating in the work of recovery, and working to 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 correct the serious problems that I had with sexual addiction. And it was at that point that I accepted the fact that I was dealing with an addiction. Yeah. Prior to that, I would not acknowledge addiction. So I had been introduced to the idea seven years before and I flatly rejected it. I said that's shaming, I won't go down that path. But I finally came to the understanding that indeed I was dealing with an addiction and that is that is a really strong explanation why I would do things that were so foolish. So 18 years ago, a little over 18 years ago, I really started on the pathway of recovery. And it took a tremendous amount of effort on my part, but I think even a greater effort on the part of my wife. She was so, I mean, obviously trauma was a big part of what she was experiencing. But to be betrayed over and over and over again, how does a person say, I can continue in this marriage after having been lied to and betrayed so many times. Yeah. And so it was a tremendous challenge for her to be willing to at least consider the possibility of staying in the marriage. And I, I I should really let her speak to this because it's her story, But, but my commitment was to my own recovery. And I was going to do that Recognizing, no matter what happened to the marriage, I had to re- work my recovery. And my prayer was that we could stay together. And that's I—I I always said that that was my intent. Her expressions were, "We'll see," hmm. and I don't know that that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a great therapist, and um, God helped me to find that therapist. And it was me that found the therapist this time. And also an excellent 12-step group and a very excellent sponsor. I was committed to the work of recovery and acknowledging where I was. But at one point that the therapist made, the first time that we went and met with him, I told him my story, a little bit longer than what I have just expressed here. And he listened. My wife went with me. I had asked her to come and she she agreed. I don't know that there was that she was necessarily feeling like she was happy about She's it, but she helpful. came. Yeah, yeah, she came. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful that she did. Had she not, we wouldn't have had this experience. But I told the therapist my story. She was there, didn't say a word. The therapist didn't say much. At the end of my story, he looked at her. He didn't look at me. He said to her, Could you stay with him if he was in recovery?
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: her response couldn't be anything different than, are you kidding? (laughs) How could I... I mean, I don't know what recovery is. I don't know what it looks like. He's lied to me over and over again. He's betrayed my trust over and over again. How, how, How could I possibly... So apologize for my emotion, but that's, um, that's a really challenging thing that she had to experience. Um, but the therapist, I think the therapist just gave her a chance to think for a moment, not knowing what that would mean. And I think he's said something like, she said something like, I, um, I don't even know what that looks like, and I think she said something like, "You will know." He was—he really is a good therapist. Uh, we know him well. He continues. His name is—is is, uh, Todd Olson, and that simple question I think gave both of us the tiniest bit of hope. I had no idea what recovery was or what it looked like, nor did Rill. But when he said, you will know, it gave me a little bit of hope that maybe there is a way to understand what I'm dealing with here. And real, uh, I think, although she may have experienced some confusion, maybe there was just a little tiny bit of hope that she that she might have been given by that in that moment. Yeah. I think that's why we do this work. Um, neither of us knew what recovery took or what it looked like. Mm-hmm. I had worked at it, I thought. Ril had worked at it, she thought, but neither of us really had understood. I had rejected the thoughts of being a sex, sex addict. I, neither of us knew anything about betrayal trauma.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. So here we were. No, none of us, we're totally clueless, but we, I think we're both willing. Yeah. So I started down the pathway of recovery. I with a good therapist and a really good association with a great 12-step group. This was a twelve a community-based 12-step group, Sex Alex Anonymous. And I found an incredible sponsor, Greg. Yeah. He had, his story was just like mine, except he had six years of sobriety when I <laughs> met him. And I thought, this is impossible. How do you have six years of sobriety? He had a big smile on his face when I came into the first meeting. I was scared out of my I was scared to death. I walked in there. Somebody's going to know me when I walk in. And that's what yeah. I thought. And
2: so, Which
1: kills me because now you're <clears throat> you're sharing your story. with yeah. Like, again, you will know real. I mean, there's there's just such yeah. beautiful evidence of recovery. Yeah. So, yeah. I
0: mean, it's, yeah, we share our story now. And, and I'm happy when somebody knows me or if they ask me yeah. my story. <laughs> and that's how you know if someone's really in recovery is they're willing to talk about their life and share their story. We don't all share it in the same way. But for us, we felt like we have something to share can we help somebody else yes. so that's been really our work for the last 15 years helping people to understand that recovery is possible it's hard work and it requires if 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 each individual is working their recovery and they're really committed to it it's truly possible to save the marriage as well in spite of the incredible damage that's done to the marriage by the betrayal and uh so it's not easy and even today um it's important for us to continue to continue to work on it because it's not just sexually acting out. It's the feeling feelings of of wanting to protect oneself, being defensive, still feeling some feelings of 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 anger or resentment or being judged. And all of those things are common in a marriage, but they they can't survive a marriage will not survive if those kinds of feelings and this drama that goes on a marriage is present for very long even though it comes up
1: because because in a in a marriage where there hasn't been trauma like massive trauma like you right. experienced those are things that you work through and you talk about but they they're critical if right. there have been these bombs that have gone off oh, inside of yeah. your marriage yeah you know as i was um studying up and i i have learned from the both of you for um many years in different ways but i thought oh you're you're living step 12 you're both just like your lives have, it has become such a part of you and it's incredibly validating for someone who's going through similar experiences to see A husband and a wife who have chosen Mm -hmm. to do their work, Mm -hmm. chosen to live in recovery in every way. Just so inspiring. And I love what your therapist said. You'll know. Because until you see someone in recovery, you don't realize how disconnected your marriage, your Mm -hmm. spouse, Mm -hmm. whatever was happening before. Mm -hmm. So to see and live with someone in recovery is. You know. Mm. You know what it is.
0: Yeah. In recovery, you can see it. If For a person that's dealing with addiction, and in this case, sexual addiction for me, um, in the midst of living the double life, I could not see myself correctly.
2: Mm.
0: There's there's so much compartmentalization Mm. and so many lies that are told to myself. I would tell them myself. And most often, a person... The the desire is to stop the behavior, mm-hmm. so the there would be a constant prayer: God, please help me stop this.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I God is unable to help me if I can't tell the truth.
1: Yeah, if you won't tell, if the I truth. <laughs> if I won't tell the
0: truth, yes. if I can't tell the truth, then what can, what's he going to do to help me? Actually, <laughs> I laugh about this, but God said, "Well, okay." Um, you know what? There's some angels. They're actually uh, they drive these cars with lights on them. And they wear these nice blue suits. They might help you. They might get your attention. They have I'll, lights on the top I'll of their just car. let them arrest <laughs> you and let's see what that does for you.
2: Mm.
0: I, I see that as a, that point in my life when I was arrested is actually a, an incredible blessing from God. Had that not happened, then I don't, I don't know where I'd be today. Yeah. So. Yes.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story and and I I I know there are details and parts and little side roads to that that are that would be so beneficial. The reason I feel like it's such a valuable conversation to have with you today is I want to talk about today the difference between love and lust. Be, because understanding what lust is helps us love better Hmm. and understanding what love is helps us see lust more clearly Hmm. i believe so i am curious just write like as clear as you can give it to us what would you say is the difference between love and lust
0: well when you invited me to participate in this podcast um I said to my wife, I was asked the question, what's the difference between love and lust? And I says, well, it's really easy. There's You can do it. You can define it in two words. Lust is taking and love is giving.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, obviously, what an incredible simplification of the situation. But,
1: but a good one.
0: A person who is living a double life like myself and has an addiction to lust, that's what sexual addiction is. It's a toxicity to lust. So a person who has the addiction of a toxicity to lust is unable to love Mm -hmm. because there is such a selfish, self-centered belief about oneself that the behavior is is very, very isolating. Mm -hmm. And so I can't connect with someone else because I really, deep down inside, don't feel worthy. Mm -hmm. So think about that. Think about the idea that living a double life and, and then putting myself out there to want to connect, that raises the feelings of hypocrisy. If I am trying to connect with someone and I'm living a double life, then my feelings of shame and anger towards myself and hypocrisy go up
2: mm-hmm.
0: dramatically. And so in order to protect myself and still live this compartmentalized double life, then I, one of those forms of protection is to not connect mm-hmm. and just kind of live on the surface. I could talk really well about things that didn't really matter, whether it was sports or the weather. But if I was going to talk about the relationship, I really couldn't talk about it unless I was making it up. And then my wife could feel that I was making it up, didn't feel the connection, and then would say something like, i feel like I don't even know you. Yeah.
1: And did and, that
0: just feel strange to you? Sure. I mean, it felt strange, but my answer would always be, of course you know me. I mean, yeah. we've lived together for how many years, and you know me. She could see what was on the outside. But one of the challenges with sexual addiction is what is on the inside is not what's being shown on the outside. Yeah. And so that, feel, that feels really awkward. And when people look at others who are dealing with the problem of sexual addiction— they look at others and think they're fine. And then they look at the inside of themselves and they know that I'm not feeling fine on the inside. There's something really the matter with me. Yeah. And so everybody else seems to be doing fine. And then the feeling is also, if anybody really knew me, then they wouldn't love me. I have to protect myself by not being honest. So I'm completely cutting myself off from the relationships that are most important.
1: Inside so, of lust.
0: Inside of lust. Yeah. It's, yeah. So if lust is... Lust is using a a natural instinct for an unnatural purpose. So it's taking from others. It's objectifying others. And so for my own satisfaction, so the term within, within the circles of recovery, in the rooms of recovery, when someone describes one of the behaviors, it's called street lust, where you're just objectifying other people that you see on the street. Yeah. Doesn't
1: and it doesn't
0: really matter who it is. It doesn't matter who it is. And and that is really sad because we're seeing people from the perspective of not who they are, but what they look like
2: mm-hmm.
0: just physically mm-hmm. or how they're dressed or their body shape or their and that's very selfish. It's just taking from them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so instead of looking at the person for who they are and that they've got a life and they probably have some great talents and experiences that if i were to know them they would just be they would enrich my own life But instead i don't want to go down that pathway i'll just see them as a you an, an object and that's a really sad state to be in so that would be considered lust
1: because you don't see people you see parts
0: see parts and pieces you know mm. it's kind of a yeah. ugly way of putting it
2: yeah
0: um and then some people present themselves to draw attention to themselves in exactly that way and for a person that wants to find that it's certainly available. And for people who would really don't want to find that, but are exposed to it, it's very discomforting. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's hard to have to be in an environment where everybody's kind of look dressed to look at me.
1: Well, we live in a, we live in a world that is lustful. Right. I I mean, just there's, there are these constant invitations to dress, act, respond, look, look, live in in kind of a state of lust all the time mm-hmm. lust is never a compliment never right. so for anyone that the kind of gets something from that and like that's not a compliment ever right. it's just someone taking from you
0: it's a selfish taking behavior yeah. yeah and certainly a person wouldn't want to be seen that way but we see people You can if you know what you're looking for, you can see people who are in that mode of just objectifying others and taking from them. Yes. Instead of instead of carefully recognizing that people are people and they have a life, how can I serve them in some way? What is there is there something that maybe I could do that would be of value to that person? Even if it's saying a prayer for them.
2: Yeah. We don't even know that. Yeah. That's
1: good. I, I when I started to understand addiction and recovery, and and so much that goes along with that, and I started to visit with more and more individuals about it, I rec um, i i not I recognized my heart. I I just was I felt so much love. I was speaking with a young man once, and I say this, and this will be disturbing to people to hear, but he said it's hard to go to family dinner. Because the cousin, the, you know, the girl cousins, um, lust, lust isn't picky, I guess is what I'm saying. And it doesn't matter if you're at church or at family dinner, or if you're, you know, it does, it doesn't matter. Lust Mm -hmm. will take from anyone. And this boy was, he just felt so sad Mm -hmm. that he'd lusted.
0: And so it is it's a sad thing he can't be present. Yeah. He can't be present and enjoy the moment because he's 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 feeling shame for objectifying someone else. Yeah. And he and it's this like I really don't want to do this. I really don't want to do this, but yet I am. Okay. And so I call that unwanted sexual behavior unwanted lust where there's just a lot of pain associated with it. And frankly, a good share of the people that I work with, that's the pain. It's really unwanted sexual behavior. They don't want it. Right. But because they haven't known what to do about surrendering those feelings and working on on what recovery really is, then they exist and they don't know how to escape them.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Love. I want to switch over to love.
0: Well, love is giving. <laughs> um. Uh, Being true to oneself and then being available to give what you have to give. Um, We all have a lot to give. And it's really sad when we have essentially cut ourselves off and been disconnected so that we can't give what we've got. Um, Love is... i Certainly God is love... And what does he give to us? He's willing to give us everything that he has. I think a person who really loves is more concerned about the other person than they are themselves. Mm -hmm. They're willing to be honest about who they are and so they can be real. People can know who they are. Mm -hmm. Um, A poser, a person who's posing in their life, we're quite uncomfortable around people that we know that are posing. But people who are authentic and are real and we can see and feel their spirit, their light, then we're comfortable with them, and we oftentimes are able to gain strength from them. And so, I think love is an is a uh, an expression of giving, of honesty, of humility, hmm. uh, a willingness to sacrifice on behalf of another, um, and and not be selfishly just thinking about myself in all of the actions that I take.
2: Hmm.
0: So we. And in the, in the most powerful way, I think, to really express our love is is a willingness to be completely honest. Mm. Um, and so that people can decide for themselves what that relationship will look like and be like. And then the, uh, that authenticity then gives fertile ground for relationships to develop. A book that I feel is really important that we all should read is called Dopamine Nation by Anna Limke and one of the chapters is called radical honesty
2: mm-hmm.
0: and in that chapter she essentially says that we recovery that one of the requirements of recovery is radical honesty mm-hmm. and one of the requirements for building relationships that are that are real and connected is radical honesty mm-hmm. so one of the ways to love is to is to give people the real you
1: To be authentic.
0: To be authentic. Genuine. Be real. And then let people um, hopefully gain something of value from the relationship because you're there and available for that. I I mentioned that I had missed out a lot on the um, lives of my children as they were growing up because I wasn't connected. And my children, as they look back on it now, we talk about it. And they know that we weren't connected. They still love me as their dad and they're very forgiving, but they know there were times that they wanted a connection and I just wasn't there for them. And that was a sad state of affairs for me and for them. Uh, Gratefully, my wife, who is extraordinarily good at connecting and being authentic and real, um... She stepped in and made sure that our children recognized who they were and and had great love for them. I think by giving to them in all ways. Uh, so oftentimes, me as a man, I felt like I was fulfilling my responsibilities as a dad if we had the physical things that are really important in right. life, like a like a house and food, and a car and go yeah. places and all the things that we think like dads need to be providing. Well, that's that's good, but I think our our children missed out on the connection part, and today i don't we can 't make up for lost time, but i 'm grateful to say that we that our family's intact, and all of our children love to be together. We often talk about these exact things exactly what we 're talking about right now. they all know my story, and my older grandchildren know my story so that they don 't have to read it on the internet or in a <laughs> book somewhere. Um, they hear it from me um, and that honesty and authenticity creates an opportunity for us to really genuinely love one another and we do we do and we're grateful for that
1: i was gonna i was thinking that as you were describing that experience with your family that is love in love there is space in love there's room for growth there's forgiveness there's forget there's asking for forgiveness mm-hmm. uh, it's Love, I always think there's just so, there's so much <clears throat> space inside of oh, yeah. love for, yeah. for so many things where lust is a little tiny, you know, like you have to fit into this and, and it's uncomfortable and, and feels good at times, but it's generally disconnecting. And mm-hmm. anyway, I, I love how you describe that. We're getting to the end of the podcast and I want to, I just want to, I want to say, okay, so the difference between love and lust, Stephen, your, your definitions and your visuals for it have been so helpful and good. If, if someone is struggling inside of lust, they want to love. Mm, to me, most people that I know that struggle with lust actually want to love. They're just so practiced at lusting. Mm-hmm. They're so practiced at going into that distraction into those denial places instead right. of instead of the discomfort of m- moving into an honest mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. What would you say to someone who's stuck in lust? I mean, you said radical honesty, which I wanted to do. <laughs> Raise the <laughs> roof, yes. 100 you know times what? over.
0: It has to start there. Yeah. Without that, we have nowhere to we have nowhere to go because there's too much fear about if people really knew me, they wouldn't love me yeah. and exactly the opposite is true when somebody really knows you, they do love you
2: mm-hmm.
0: Be, and you think about what that really means. Do we love the people more who are authentic and we know their story? do we love them more? Do we have a greater level of understanding for their their challenges and their plights and their and their fears? Yes, and and all of the experiences that they've had in life that may have hardened them for some way, or maybe they're great experiences that we need to, we need to know more about them. How great it is that we would could know each other's story, we would love each other more if that were the case. But we're very protective about our own stories.
2: Hmm.
0: I, I I think about this as a little bit, the Savior Jesus Christ. Knows all of our stories.
2: Mm-hmm. He details. Knows
0: us all
1: the details.
0: He knows totally who we are. mm mm-hmm. um, Since he knows us, he really loves us mm-hmm. because he knows us. And I believe for uh, any relationship, if, if a person is known, then we can become vulnerable. We can be authentic. We can be real. So a person who really wants recovery but is afraid, there are some wonderful resources to get help from sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. And in both cases, it most people feel a lot of shame, anger towards themselves, fear. Mm-hmm. I've felt all of those things. I was afraid. Mm-hmm. But when the chips are down to the point where rock bottom has been hit, mm-hmm. then all of those fears... Are lessened and it's like the pain of the and the of the addiction, the pain of all of the results of the addiction actually becomes more than the pain of working recovery. That's a very interesting concept. When the pain of the addiction finally gets worse than the pain of working recovery, then most generally we'll go there. Yeah. But there's so much fear associated with stepping onto the pathway of recovery. It's sad. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: We shouldn't feel that way, but we do. Mm -hmm. And so, I would just invite anybody who is really thinking, "I really need to do this," jump on our website and see what some what can be learned about recovery. There is hope for recovery. The promises that we have about recovery. I would just invite anybody to go to the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and read the Twelve Promises. I think they're on page eighty-four. They're at the end of Step Nine. And one of those promises is, we will not regret the past.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow,
0: what a promise! We will not regret the past. That mm-hmm. is true.
1: And it aligns for me. It aligns so beautifully with who God is that right. He will take every experience that we have and make it for good, mm-hmm. if we, if we, if we'll let Him. Which yeah. means if we're gonna, if we're willing to be honest. I was sitting on a beach once with a young boy and there were, there were so many different swimming suit types on the beach. And I saw this young boy look over and then I saw him look again. And in fear, I I think I would have been like, get your head down. Like, stop looking. What are you looking at? Mm-hmm. But I was in a good place. And I said, it's an interesting swimming suit, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah. And he was kind of caught off guard. And I said, our bodies are really beautiful things. And um, that person's choosing to show a lot of her body. How does that feel? To take the lust out of it and to say, that's a person. You're a person. Mm -hmm. You matter. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to fear. You just have to be honest about your thoughts, right. about the way you choose to look and see. Right. To me, lust is a take. It's a whoa instead of a, oh, mm-hmm. there's, there's a, yeah. that's a person. Yeah. And love, love creates space for them. There's no judgment. Mm -hmm. There's no what's wrong with you. There's no what's wrong with me. There's Mm -hmm. space for growth.
0: Right. There's opportunity in love. Yeah. Relationships are really the most important thing that we can learn how to— that we learn to develop in this life. And if we cheat ourselves by being selfishly involved in actions of lust or addiction in general, we lose a lot. And so it's— there's. The opportunities and the rewards of living in recovery are just immense. I have a good friend. um, uh, He's been out of the church for a year. Got back in fully this week. And I said to him the other day, I said, uh, could you have imagined where you were a year ago to where you are right now? And he said, "I could never imagine that the changes can actually the work of recovery and the changes in the way a person feels about life and themselves and others can happen rather quickly. More more quickly than we might realize Mm. when we honestly approach it, it can happen pretty fast.
1: Live the steps, yeah. Work the steps, and then
0: God Himself will immediately." Bless us as soon as we're willing to be honest.
1: I agree. Thank you, Stephen, for coming. I, I feel like when you and Real walk into a room, we, it, people should just start clapping. <laughs> and here's why you have been in the deepest valleys, and together you chose to walk out. It's <laughs> really, really incredible. And not only are you walking out, but you have hundreds of people behind you saying, how are you doing that? How, how do I get up that hill? It's incredible. Well,
0: thank you. That's very kind. That's very kind.
1: Thank you to both of you. And oh,
0: Thank you. You need to have my wife come on.
1: I want her to come
0: <laughs> <laughs> She is a marvelous lady. And uh, her story is, from the other perspective of trauma, is one that also gives hope.
1: Well, she is the... I mean, she is love, right? She chose to love and work through so much pain and trauma. She has. Anyway, thank you you. for coming today.
0: Thank you. My pleasure.
1: You'll have many choices in your days and in your week. I hope you'll choose to do the work. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, share a written experience, or ask me a question, go to coachchristie.life and fill out the podcast questionnaire, and we'll be in touch with you soon there are no dumb questions or experiences, just opportunities to learn and do the work. Have a great week.